June 15, 2015. June 15, 2015. Almost exactly one year ago, my family and I left Canada to begin our ministry in Singapore. And I can still remember my emotion as the plane was taking off from the Vancouver airport. On one hand, I was feeling really excited about our upcoming ministry at East. I mean, after all, we've been praying for this for a long time. Yet on the other hand, part of me felt heavy-hearted because I was leaving behind my family, my friends, my church, my home for the last 30-plus years. So after almost about 20-plus hours of traveling, Singapore is a long ways away, by the way, we finally landed in Singapore, just minutes before midnight. By then, the four of us were totally exhausted. And after getting through immigration and gathering our luggage, we began to slowly move towards the main arrival hall. By then, it was almost, I would say, about 1 a.m., so not a lot of people there. But then from a distance, I could see an elderly couple. It was my principal and his wife waving at us with a big smile on their face. And then they approached us and gave us a warm hug. And then not only that, after they helped us with our luggage, they gave us a bag that contains next day's breakfast, maps, bus passes, along with some other things. I mean, these guys are so thoughtful. To be honest, part of me felt awful that they had to come to the airport so late at night. Yet, at the same time, their kindness, their hospitality, their warm greetings made us feel at home, even though we were now thousands and thousands and thousands of miles away from Vancouver. And you know, in the weeks that follow, we continued to get greetings and warm wishes from our fellow staff at East. One morning, a lady even came to me, knocked to my office and said, hey, guess what I got you? I said, what did you get me? She held up a bag and then there was a steaming hot jujang bun, okay, the rice noodle. She thought, you know what, I thought you would miss Cantonese food. And she actually went to a place where the actor Dao Yun fought. He actually goes there to buy his jujang bun. So I tell you, it was good. My stomach was blessed, but more so my heart was touched because of her love, her hospitality. I have to say, our first few weeks in Singapore have reminded me of the closeness, the warmth that comes from being in a Christian community. And I remember saying to myself, boy, this place, this place at East feels pretty good already. The community here feels so good. I can't imagine how much better it's going to be when we get to that perfect community in heaven. I wonder what that's going to be like. And you know what? From time to time, the Bible does give us a sneak preview of what a perfect community looks like. A small glimpse of heaven, if you will. And whenever I come across a passage like that that deals with perfect community, it's as though I'm watching this movie trailer on an upcoming blockbuster. It gets me excited. It gets me uh, excited about what's coming in the future. And today I want to take you to one such passage that will give us a glimpse of what perfect community looks like. So please get your Bible. If you don't have one, there should be one in front of your pew. And turn with me to Acts 4. So please get your Bible and turn with me to Acts 4, verses 32 to 35. And I invite you to follow along as we study the text together. Acts 4, verses 32 to 35. 
Now, the book of Acts records what I would call the best of time and the worst of time. It was the best of time because it was a time when we have exponential growth in the Christian faith. Yet, it was the worst of time because it was a time of persecution, a time of killing, a time of dying for their faith. So I'll be reading from the NIV translation. And as we go through this passage, I want us to first look at what a perfect community looks like. But more importantly, also, how do we become such a perfect community? So Acts 4, verses 32 to 35, I'll be reading from the NIV translation. It says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. In this passage, the author Luke has presented the ideal church or the early church as an ideal. And he did that quite cleverly using two simple phrases. Look at the opening words of verse 32. It says, all believers were one in heart and mind. Yes, one heart, one mind. Now that, sound, that might sound like a fancy title to a love song or even a catchy slogan for a political campaign, or maybe even a religious campaign. But you know what? To the Gentile Christians, many of them who were influenced by Greek thinking, the phrase, one in heart and mind, would immediately trigger a response. It's something that would get them excited, because one heart, one mind is the phrase they use to describe the ideal world. It would be like telling my six-year-old son Josiah of a world where everything is made out of Lego blocks, okay? Or every piece of food is dipped in sweet, rich chocolate. That would get him excited. That would, want, that would get him to want to go to this ideal world. Or maybe for us, it would be like me telling you, every day is Boxing Day sale. And not only that, you never have to pay PST and GST on any of your purchases. Now, some of you now are excited. I can see smiles, maybe even tears of joy rolling down your cheeks. So, yes, to the Greek, the phrase one heart, one mind represents the ideal. The Greek philosopher Plato taught that it is only when we reach this golden age of humanity that people experience one heart, one mind. Similarly, the Greek philosopher Aristotle have used the phrase one heart, one mind to define the ideal in terms of human relationships. In fact, Aristotle would often say, true friendship is when you have one heart, one mind, living in two separate bodies. Isn't that a great image? One heart, one mind, living in two separate bodies. So when Luke used the phrase, one heart, one mind, he's portraying the early church as the ideal. And this would obviously be, uh, ob- this would be obvious to his Gentile readers who longed for such such a community, even though many probably thought it was humanly impossible to achieve that. Besides one heart, one mind, Luke also used a second phrase to portray the early church as the ideal. And it's found at the beginning of verse 34. Look at verse 34. It says, 
there were no needy persons among them. Now this phrase would immediately catch the attention of the Jewish believers because it would remind them of a passage that they all very know very well from Deuteronomy 15.4, which reads, However, there should be no poor among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. So the phrase is used to describe the ideal world, a world that all the Jews are longing for, the ideal place, the place they want to be. So with just two simple phrases, one heart, one mind, and there is no needy people among you, Luke presented the the early church as an ideal community, both for the Gentiles and for the Jews. Now at this point, some of you may be thinking, at least I was thinking, wow, it must be kind of nice to be in such a community, right? I mean, you can just hang out together, maybe hold hands, sing kumbaya, and just eat all the food that is provided through the community. Pretty sweet, right? I mean, isn't that what the early Christians did? They just hang around, enjoy the fellowship, and just be with one another in the community? In fact, that was not the case. Look with me at verse 33. What does verse 33 says? With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of Lord Jesus. In other words, they were passionate about reaching out. They were passionate about evangelism. Yes, they got to experience great harmony. They got to experience God's provision in this community. But guess what? They never lost sight of the facts for their existence. The reason they gathered was not to sing Kambaya, but rather to collectively serve as one body to evangelize. And in fact, I think Luke wanted his readers to not overlook this. He wanted his readers to recognize the importance of evangelism just by the way he constructed this passage. Notice verse 32 and 34, which we've already looked at. They're like parallel to each other. They both present the ideal world in a different way. And right sandwiched in between these verses is verse 33, which talks about evangelism. Now, some of you may know that biblical authors would often use a literary device called a chiastic structure to make his point. And in a chiastic structure, the author would insert the main idea, the key point, in between two parallel ideas. So it's kind of like a hamburger, okay? Not a very spiritual thing by any means, but makes a good illustration. Think of a hamburger. You have, what, the bun, right? And then the meat, And then the bun. What's the most important part? The meat. It's what's stuck right in the middle. And that's what we see in this passage. In verse uh, 32 to 35, we see a chiastic structure. Uh, And this chiastic structure actually extends well beyond chapter 4, but we don't have time to get into that. The main point is this. The way Luke wrote it, he wanted to highlight evangelism. It is as though he took out from his pocket a highlighter and just highlighted verse 33 so his readers will not miss it. He wanted his readers to never overlook evangelism as the main reason for Christian community. He wanted them to gather not just for the warm and fuzzy community. No, they want, he wanted his readers to know that when we gather, a purpose is to serve collectively to reach out to the lost. And you know what? I think that's still true for our churches today. 
one of my highlights during my time at East this past year was uh, doing campus outreach ministry with my students. One time I took a Korean student with me to go to a business school in Singapore, and we did one-on-one evangelism. Now, this guy spoke broken English. I mean, he, he can't finish a sentence without stumbling over his words. So it was not easy for him to talk to strangers and to explain the gospel. So this whole afternoon, we were together. We reached out to different people. He was struggling. He was stumbling and fumbling, and he was embarrassed at times. So afterward, we did a debrief, and I thought, man, this guy's going to quit seminary for sure after today. But you know what? He said, Jacob, that was the most difficult and yet most enjoyable experience for me in Singapore. He said, because he, was, he knew he was doing what God wanted us to do. That is, to share the good news. Even though he cannot complete a sentence with, without fumbling, even though he had language problems, he knew God was pleased. And that is why he continued to share with broken English. So let's not be confused. Building a Christian community, as important as that may sound, is not an end itself. It is just the means to an end. Our end goal, our ultimate goal, must always be about evangelizing to the lost. Otherwise, us being together doesn't have much eternal value. So let me ask you this. How are we doing in the area of evangelism and outreach? Is that what people see us doing passionately day in and day out? Or are we busy? Are we caught up with things that seem so important? But at the end of the day, these things have no eternal meaning. So far, we've looked at what an ideal community looks like. Luke used two different phrases to portray the early church as the ideal. One heart, one mind, and there's no needy people among them. We also see that the ideal community is a place where people powerfully and continually testify to the resurrection of Lord Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but I think it would be kind of cool, kind of wonderful to be in such a community. So the question is, how do we move towards becoming this ideal community? How can VCBC become the church that's portrayed in Acts 4? According to this passage, I believe the early church did two things. And I'll try to sum up what they did using two words, both beginning with the letter S. The first S is surrender. Surrender. We see evidence of surrendering throughout this passage. If you look at the text, in verse 32, we read that no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. This means believers voluntarily let go, gave up what clearly belonged to them. In verse 34, we read that the believers sold the lands or houses. Again, this outward act of selling their possession was really a powerful way of uh, expressing their inward desire to care, to surrender, to share what they have. In verse 35, we read that people took money from the sale of the land and put it at the apostles' feet. And oftentimes, they would probably do this kneeling down. The act of kneeling down and surrendering to possession is a powerful image of surrendering. 
You know, every time we come across a passage like Acts 4, we can't rush through it. Honestly, we have to stop, pause, and do some self-examination. When was the last time you and I surrender ourselves, our all, for the sake of this community? You know, sometimes it involves laying down your possessions, yes. But more often than not, it involves laying down your own interests, your point of view, your preferences, your biases. Putting other people first for the sake of building up this place. Have you done that recently? Or is there something that you're holding on to with such tight fists that you're in fact choking your relationship with others around you? And worse, choking your relationship with God. It's time to let that go. During this past year, I've had countless, I've heard countless testimonies from students who gave up everything to minister to others. Josephine already shared with you this Mongolian family who sold everything in order to be in ministry. Yes, this family surrendered all. Yes, they're financially poor. But you know, every time I sit down and talk to my Mongolian brother, his favorite phrase is, it's okay, it's okay. It's okay because he knows it's worth it. It's okay because he knows our God will provide. You know, it is so refreshing, so exciting to be alongside with peoples like that who live with a heart of gratitude. They never complain. They always give thanks. Another student from China surrender his safety, his well-being, in order to serve in ministry. Right now, him, his family, and even his elderly mom, who's a disabled, who's a farmer who became disabled, they're being harassed by the government. He told me, he's already been told by the police that the moment he returns to China after graduating from Singapore, he will be arrested and put to jail. And yet, he's not deterred from his calling. Uh-uh. He's willing to surrender all to keep his ministry going. In a world where persecution is real. So to cultivate the ideal community, the believers surrendered all. And not only that, they shared everything. So I would use the word sharing to describe the second thing they did. Look at verse 32 again. Not only did they surrender the possession, they also shared everything. In other words, they were giving out their possessions to others. Similarly, look at verse 35 again. We read that the money from the sale of properties were placed at the apostles' feet. Again, the money was distributed, shared to anyone who had need. So how did the Christian, early Christian cultivate an ideal community that testifies Christ? To cultivate an ideal community that testifies Christ, they practiced the discipline of surrendering and sharing. To cultivate a community that testifies Christ, they practiced the discipline of surrendering and sharing. And I think that's the key message of this passage. And how often they did that? Well, they did it repeatedly. I really like the NIV translation because in verse 34, you see the phrase from time to time was added. And it's a great translation because in the original Greek, the, the act of laying down, giving up, 
they were in a, what's called an iterative imperfect tense. And what that really means is it's something that they did repeatedly, continually, over and over again. Now let's step back for a minute. It's relatively easy to do something good and nice once or twice. But to do it repeatedly, continually, over and over again, that's tough. But that's genuine sharing. And you know what? Not only did they share repeatedly, they gave up everything. In verse 32, we, we see not reference to reference to not just land and houses, but you see that it was referred to any of their possessions and everything they had. Here comes a trick question. Are you ready for this? What does everything include? Everything. Everything could involve tangible assets, like maybe your car, your house, money, food, so forth. But it could also include intangible possessions, like your time your life experience, your energy, your God-given personality, your gifts. Whatever they possess, they are willing to share with others. And indeed, God has blessed some of us with tangible assets, tangible possessions. And for some, it's intangible assets. But regardless of the form of that possession, one thing is for sure, to cultivate the ideal community that testifies Christ, they practice the discipline of surrendering and sharing. And I think that principle still applies to us today. Let me close with an illustration. It was time to collect the offering on Sunday. And as uh, ushers were passing the offering plate up and down the pew, it's rather normal, uneventful, until the plate reached a five-year-old girl. Five-year-old girl took the plate, put it down on the floor, took off her shoes, stood right on the plate. At this point, the mom's going, Honey, get off the plate. Pass it down. The girl looked at mom and just shook her head. So the mom repeated the, the request, this time much more sternly. Honey, get off the plate and pass it down. The girl looked at the mom and said, Mom, I learned in Sunday school that we need to surrender all. We need to surrender our best. That's what I'm doing right now. My brothers, my sisters, that little girl knows something that many of us have already forgotten. That little girl knows a thing or two about surrendering. And as, until, and as a community, until we recognize the importance of surrendering, giving our all, and sharing what God has entrusted to us, we cannot truly experience the community that God desires for us to have. To cultivate an ideal community that testifies Christ, we, VCBC, need to practice the discipline of surrendering and sharing. We've seen today it is through this process that they experience the ideal. And that's something I long for. I long for myself. I long for this church. That you would experience such oneness. Such an ideal. Invite you to bow and just enter into a time of reflection. And as you spend this 
next moment or two with the Lord, I'm just going to ask you some questions. It's a time between you and the Lord, so take advantage of this time of quiet. Are there areas in your life right now that you need to surrender? Maybe it's a lifestyle. Maybe it's a habit. Maybe it's a mindset. An attitude. A pride. Something you know you need to surrender in order to move on. Are you willing to let go and surrender that now? And are you willing to share what God has entrusted to you so to bless others here at BCBC and maybe to others around the world? For some, God has given you tangible assets like your car, your home. All these things can be a tremendous blessing to others if only you would choose to share. For others, it's intangible assets like your life experience, your time, your cheerful spirit, your outgoing personality. All these things can bless others if only you would share them. Are you willing to share with others? So in this quiet moment, let me just ask you to spend some time with the Lord and reflect. Ask Him to reveal to you what's that one thing you need to surrender. And what's that one thing you need to share? Let me pray. Dear God, we too desire to be a part of an ideal community that testifies Christ. So may we learn to surrender ourselves and share what you've entrusted to us to bless others so that your wonderful name may be glorified and the body of Christ for whom you died be edified. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.